Well, hi, and welcome to The Economist's Corner, a CETA podcast where we talk with leading Australian economists, breaking down the latest economic news and policy updates as CETA continues to pursue solutions that deliver better economic and social outcomes for the greater good. Uh, before we get started, if you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast, The Greater Good and The Economist's Corner. You can find us wherever you get your pods and rating our show helps other define others to find us easier as well. Uh, in this episode, I'm joined by Peter Harris AO. Peter is a senior public policy advisor. Actually, that's not true, Peter, is it? You are the CEO of the COVID-19 Coordination Commission. I shouldn't just say a senior public policy person. <laughs> it, it could be deceptive, Melinda, because you know people imagine all kinds of things about a CEO. I tried to be, when I got here, I tried to be sort of um, uh, advisor or something like that and people said no they won't understand what that is either so we ended up being a ceo but yeah. <laughs> well i have a set of luminary commissioners and then i am the i guess the glue that holds the show together well so i'm, um, a, I'm a glue pot well i think australia is in good hands if you are the glue peter um most of you will know that peter uh previously of course was the chairman of the productivity commission from 2013 to 2018 um, and was instrumental in a range of uh, really influential reports, um, including the Shifting the Dial report uh, and the Data Availability and Use report, which I, of course, had the great pleasure of working with Peter on. Um, what people may not realise, Peter, is that um, you've got just a long track record of doing lots of other things, particularly in the microeconomic space, but specifically um, as regards transport uh, and have been in and around transport, airports, aviation for quite some time, including having been a senior executive uh, with the ANSET Air New Zealand Group. So well-placed to talk to us about what we're going to make of Australia's airline industry uh, and the challenges it faces uh, today. Um, yeah, well, that's right. I have, a fine, I have a fine track record of belonging to uh, <laughs> companies that end up in um, the receiver's hands. So... Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> I've got that background as well. I, I'm not just in aviation, I might say, because I ran public transport in Melbourne and uh, was primarily employed a year after the ANSET debacle for, um, for my, my experience as the public transport companies uh, in Victoria, then uh, National Express, the largest of them, went into receivership too. So, yep, I've got, I've got, I've got what you might call crisis management in corporate background as well. <laughs> All right. Well, the crisis management expert. Um, well, the, you know, Australia's aviation industry, obviously, um, hugely important. Uh, an annual revenue prior to the crisis of around $43.5 billion and contributing just under $16 billion to the Australian economy a few years back, um, plus an employer of considerable size with around about 88,000 people um, employed across the sector um, earlier this year. Uh, the, the airlines have been hit hard by this crisis, obviously, Peter, and one of the first um, industries to really um, suffer under the COVID crisis with the closing of our international borders and then gradually the closing of domestic borders and almost the complete cessation of air travel. Um, where to from here, do you think, Peter? Um, we've, seen, we've seen the collapse of Virgin. We've seen a buyer for Virgin emerge. But what, is, what does that sector look like from your perspective? Well, I think the first thing to think about here is 
almost every sector in the Australian economy is, of course, interdependent with other sectors. And so where boundaries exist in terms of 88,000 employees or not, it's, it's, it's one metric. But probably the bigger and more significant metric for this kind of COVID crisis is what's shown up is the absolute dependency of so many producing industries that need to get their product offshore or from offshore into Australia that are dependent on aviation and airports. Uh, you know, from the extent to which people have, have, have realised that so much of freight travels in the belly hold of international passenger aircraft, and so when the international passenger aircraft are put on the ground substantially, the air freight capacity disappears, and what goes in the belly hold of passenger aircraft is generally very high-value freight. Um, so you know, relatively low-weight, high-value, it, it's stuff that um, often uh, has a relatively short shelf life, um, or it has... Uh, other characteristics, safety and security, that, that generally say it should get as swiftly as possible from the destination. And so uh, obviously governments, when faced with the need to um, uh, close down substantial uh, parts of, of international connections uh, in order to protect the populace in a, in a pandemic situation like this one, aren't just ceasing the direct activity of aviation and airports, they cease a whole bunch of indirect activity which is dependent on that through tourism, air freight, uh, and then on out of out of tourism into hotel accommodation, which was part of it is obviously not dependent uh, directly on airports. People get to hotels by other means. Um, a substantial part of it comes from that, and so it goes through the accommodation sector and out through that. And so plenty of sectors can point to these dependencies, but in a in a pandemic environment, primarily dealing with um, uh, in interventions to reduce. Uh, the human-facing activities of business, and this is one of the most human-facing intense, if that's a reasonable term, kind of businesses that there there is available in the Australian economy today. So we have a high level of dependency and we have a, uh, therefore a high level of need to try and restore at least some of this kind of, um, some of this kind of activity as soon as we possibly can. Yeah, so I think it's a really important point, Peter. I know um, when I was um, talking to Christine Holgate uh, at our State of the Nation uh, forum, she spoke to the amount of um, Aussie Post business that, that gets flown around in the belly of these aircraft as well domestically. And, of course, when the pandemic hit, uh, everyone sort of resorted to online shopping and things like that. And, uh, you know, buying all their clothes online. and But, of course, everything had to be delivered. Uh, and she was talking about having to organise, um, you know, private planes. And I think it was, you know, 16 a day or something like that. It was absolutely enormous number that they were having to hire themselves. And it, it goes to your point exactly around the interdependencies that I think, you know, we don't we don't tend to consider when something like this happens. And, and, and the crisis has really brought that to the fore. And one of our commissioners, Paul Little, was directly involved in obtaining that capacity and, and uh, helping the infrastructure department in Canberra put together its uh, international air freight um, arrangements to effectively hire in aircraft to be able to deliver uh, uh, international freight offshore, but also uh, the domestic by the post. And it was quite a specific issue um, early on in the uh, MCCC's uh, life. Um, uh, so, you know, it's the sort of role that we've been undertaking here in problem solving, and that's an absolute classic version of it. But I guess my primary point is, because of this high level of dependency on, on and, and very high value kind of return in terms of either high employment intensity, and that's tourism and accommodation and that kind of thing, 
or genuinely high value in terms of the agriculture exports. You know, you think of rock lobsters that are meant to get uh, effectively live to uh, customers in Asia and that sort of thing. And, and there's a product with a very, very short shelf life. Um, mm. So you, you sort of have to stand up the new capacity very quickly and you have to gain understandings at the regulatory barriers. Because just like here in Australia, we, we started out, when we started out this pandemic, you know, we had um, ships that people didn't want to unload because of fear that, that there might be um, virus brought with the ship. The same thing applies in, in air freight. People were questioning this. You might remember we had some uh, Qantas baggage handlers who did actually get COVID in, in Adelaide. So the, the acceptance by regulatory authorities that, that we can manage safely the delivery of, of um, what are the highest value services offshore, these are all impediments that have to be overcome quite quickly and they go to the characterisation of this industry in its second, I think, really important characteristic beyond that high level of independency. Uh, and that is, it's a highly regulated industry. It's an industry where there are rules and where there are rules and pandemics intervene, um, changing those rules rapidly or, or, or gaining, um, how can I put it, a reasonable, a, a reasonable person's acceptance that in this circumstance, we're going to have to breach the rule. These are again, really hard tasks uh, and ones where yeah. um, government capabilities are brought to the fore because it's government to government arrangements that set these rules up and it's government to government arrangements which are required to set them aside uh, as far as is reasonably uh, you know, um, acceptable in a pandemic environment to maintain that part of the business which we can keep maintaining. Obviously, in the case of tourism, there was very, very limited capacity. That. In the case of, of air freight, much greater capacity, as long as there was a reasonable understanding that this business was, was vital and was a, a deeply improbable way of seeing, seeing disease transfer. Do you think any of those rules uh, um, will be changed for good? I mean, these, these sorts of episodes obviously, you know, always give you a bit of insight into whether they've they're fit for purpose? Do you think we'll go back to where we were in some of those regulations or? Well, a, a classic will be um, electronic bills of lading and, and the uh, related uh, information that normally has to travel with a, um, with a cargo. Uh, um, clearly, as we know, take for example, money. One of the early things I wrote before I actually took up this job when I was working for somebody else, I wrote some likelihood changes that would, would occur in my view as a result of a pandemic like this. And I said, well, basically, I think money will go out of fashion. It's a known vector for transmitting disease. And obviously if people have got debit cards, they can, they can pay that way and there are other mechanisms. And we've seen that now happening here. But the same thing is true of a bill of lading. If you want to put a physical bill on top of a, a transferring good, um, then you've got a mechanism which, given you fly it to another location and it arrives there within six hours and somebody else picks up that object, it's not that dissimilar to money changing hands from one person who carries a virus to another person and mm. so there's a disease transfer whereas you get electronic bills of lading don't have that problem so there has been a, a lot of desultory uh, effort to reform that area i think we're almost certain to see in in the, in the short term kind of thing there have been workarounds created but it's a very very difficult place for further effort between regulatory authorities to say I can accept an electronic uh, information transfer that says this good is the, is the relevant good. And, and you know, swiping barcodes and things like that. So you've got mechanisms that can deliberately do this. We, we know we have them. We carry them on our phones, for example. You know, we can get a downloaded boarding pass. It's got an electronic uh, signature on it of one form or another. 
Um, we swipe that over a reader. It says this is this particular person. Well, the same thing can be applied to a group. So we can do this, right? We can do it. The systems exist. And yes, it looks at the certain points in time like it's a, you know, an expense, an IT project. Why would you have another one of them? They always go wrong. They're very difficult. And we have to coordinate them between nations. It's like even more difficulty, that kind of thing. Bottom line is, it's almost certainly going to be proved to be a wise investment. Yeah. Um, I think for many Australians, the, the sort of airline uh, crisis, you know, is it, brought to bear for them in terms of their ability to move around the country. And for those of us who are old enough to remember um, the shock of the ANSAT collapse, um, it, it is quite a disruption. And I think one of the things that we've become quite used to, both in, you know, through our own individual personal experiences, but also many of the businesses that rely on, on tourism is the ease with which we are able, you know, before this crisis have been able to fly around the country. And not just the ease, but the, the price competitiveness of it. Um, That's right. That's right. Well, you see that here's a classic thing, right? Labor mobility. So labor mobility, very important to uh, uh, economies, uh, particularly economies that, are, that have a high level of better value in services. So we are very much a services-oriented economy. Services are delivered by people. People need to move around the place in order to deliver those services. And that goes right out into labour forces through even even hard rock mining, for example, as you know, fly and fly out workforces. And there you go, we've got a, we don't have a transport system uh, as, as dedicated as, as uh, we might want in order to support those kinds of activities at the moment. Plus we have state border closures and we have um, restrictions in terms of of social distancing and passing through terminals and then obviously for anything that's international in nature we have social distancing for passing through customs checks and things like that so the broad fact of the life for the next 18 months or so is going to be and that's a i think well maybe 12 months is a minimum but but i would think a period of minimum like that is we're not going to see efficient labor mobility now will that cost an economy in a, in a seriously material way the answer is yes, in some kind of niche areas. But were this to persist for the long term, were we to graduate from COVID as a pandemic to living with COVID, we might want to look at things like um, the whole 9-11 disaster and realise that all that security that was added at airports and the delay factors and the um, impediments that have come from that, but we all consider them to be socially necessary so that planes aren't blowing up. Um, well, we might end up we might end up in a post-COVID environment where we're going to have to accept something not unlike that as well as an overlay in support of both uh, labour mobility in terms of people getting to work using uh, airports and uh, aircraft, but also in terms of, of tourism. We just might have to accept uh, an overlay like that. Because, uh, you know, I did hear uh, Graham Turner from uh, Flight Centre on, on AM this morning. Um, so this is um, on the day today we were speaking, but it was a really interesting discussion he was, he was putting forward uh, around this that, you know, the virus itself is something we either learn to live with or we hope it dies out unless there's a vaccine. Mm. And, and those are the scenarios. We learn to live with it unless it dies out by some natural means. And I'm, I'm not able to predict that, obviously not a health professional, but uh, or, or there's a vaccine. And we might find that we have to live with it. And therefore, we might find that um, alterations to airport kind of um, processing, uh, just like post 9-11, things we're going to have to live with. And I don't say that with any happiness uh, because they are clear-cut costs, not just cost to airports and airlines, they're cost to us 
terms of convenience. So do you think, I mean, one of the interesting you know, things that I've had conversations with various businesses around is that this experience of the last couple of months has sort of reframed um, their attitude towards travel, um, both from, I think, a productivity perspective, uh, time wasted, but also, um, you know, just there's some benefits around being able to connect with a wider audience if you get everyone doing this virtually rather than thinking that you're going to fly people around the country. And then from a cost perspective, because, of course, most businesses are now facing into steeper costs and, and, and less revenue, so they're looking for ways to get costs out. I've heard some people talking about reducing their uh, international travel by as much as 80% as a business. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think... It, that's likely to happen, or do you think we're going to see um, a, a bit more of a sort of reversion to normal activity? I'm not so sure about international um, myself because cultural differences are harder to overcome via um, you know, uh, the equivalent of, of Zoom kind of conferencing and things like that. Um, I'm not saying it, it won't be there in the short term. I think it certainly will be. How long is the short term? You know, for me a two or three year kind of hiatus is plausible for um, uh, substantial business travel, but I, I t tend to think that internationally it will come back. But domestically, if you look at it, I mean, it's it's an eye-opener for to Australians to realise that Sydney-Melbourne route is either, depending on your measure, the second or the third most dense route in the world for traffic, uh, Sydney-Melbourne route. We've come to accept that we can just get on a plane any time we like for travelling between Sydney and Melbourne, and it's not too far off that, really, from, from Brisbane and Adelaide, you know, and then, of course, we know it, it's probably less dense going on to some of the other capitals, but we have these very dense routes, and part of that is because of the sheer convenience of it. Now, if it becomes inconvenient in a health sense to, to travel through airports, I think that might have a significant impact on whether domestically people decide it's worthwhile. And uh, it depends on your individual experience, but um, uh, uh, you know, my, my impression of uh, aviation in, inside Europe is that because of air traffic delays more than anything else, trains became a super acceptable way of getting around because they just didn't have that. They were far more convenient than the delay fact that you potentially encountered using an aircraft between and the relatively short haul distances between European capitals. and. Uh, so they had a substitute and alternative, and, and that's strengthened that. In our case, we don't have the alternative on the ground in Sydney and Melbourne, and uh, that's not necessarily an invitation to have that, in my view, but nevertheless, we don't have it. We're unlikely to have it in the short term. So I do think that if there's, if there's a continuing inconvenience to um, travel, you are going to see those relatively dense routes become less dense over time uh, because we will find the acceptability of video conferencing simply because we've all learned to use it as a as a tool um uh, it's no longer a novelty it's uh it's almost a question of how many apps have you got on your phone for the different different video you know, conferencing systems i'm up to six but you know <laughs> how many have you become expert in using is the question we have to ask ourselves ah uh, yes well that's right you're interrogating me this about this earlier i would have to say that i know i know two that I'm particularly familiar with, and everyone after that is a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Peter, um, you, you know, obviously, you know the market pretty well, um, and having worked at Answer and seeing what that looks like from, from the perspective of a, a company that hasn't survived in the market. I mean, what is the economics of 
the airline industry look like, um, you know, after this crisis? If you're talking about, you know, that that cash cow of the Sydney Melbourne route, <laughs> if, if that's not as popular, and if you start to see a significant reduction in in air travel, how do we make that work? And to go back to your earlier comment, you know, it, this is. We see this in terms of hopping on a plane to go into a business meeting in Sydney or whatever, or hopping up on a plane to go to the Gold Coast for a holiday. But sitting underneath that plane is all of the other stuff that you talked about earlier. So you know, is this a market that's viable for two carriers like a Virgin and a Qantas? Does it look the same as it... Does it end up in, in a time looking the same as it did a year ago? Or are we looking at a considerably reshaped domestic airline industry? I, I think there's no doubt at all we're looking at, at a considerably reshaped domestic airline and international for that matter, but just for concern domestic, but a, a considerably reshaped industry. And I, I think airlines, and it's consistent with the sort of, I think the message Alan Joyce has been putting out from, from the very start, uh, this will be you know, a, a very significant challenge to aviation globally, and yeah. some airlines will survive and some won't. And I think that's actually clear cut as a, as a truth in the future. The level of support that governments are giving to airlines currently, and it is less in Australia than it is in, in Europe and, and in the US, but nevertheless, that can't persist long term as it can't persist support to any other industry. Governments can't keep underwriting the existence of, of uh, for-profit uh, shareholder managed entities. So. Uh, there will be a withdrawal of support at, at, at some point, and I think all of management in Australian airlines are going to be focused very closely on the degree to which they can continue to provide uh, convenient services, but with less less cost than they were providing them prior to the crisis. And that's not to suggest that they were horribly inefficient prior to the crisis. It just means there's going to be quite a lot of pressure on every cost aspect of the business uh, and the airlines that, that, that thrive in those circumstances, and I think some airlines will thrive in those circumstances, will be those that can seize early upon the switches to um, greater use of, of digital services. I found that interesting in the Bain proposition for taking over uh, Virgin, that uh, they, they emphasised strongly that Virgin would, would go more digital. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, I have my own guesses at what that might mean, but, but uh, They'll undoubtedly have plans to introduce the kinds of services that we have seen offshore. We have quite digitally oriented airlines at the moment in Australia, but there there are, I think, increasing options for that purpose. That and in part they'll involve substituting technology for labour, and so there will be, uh, you know, employment costs uh, to this kind of um, reform in the industry. Uh, and I, I think that's, I mean, I, I guess it sounds. Uh, cruel to say it, but I think it is a truth. It's, it's unlikely. It seems unlikely to me that we will see the same number of people employed in aviation post this crisis ever again as we saw employed prior to this crisis. And that doesn't mean all jobs will be swept away, but I think it's one of the key pressure points. You'll see the same thing for efficiencies in, in uh, other costs as well. There will be strong competitiveness, I think, uh, exhibited between uh, airline and airport again. Uh, we saw some signs of that before uh, COVID crisis came up, and, and uh, we'll think we'll see. Um, uh, I think potential other efficiencies in terms of, of marketing and, and 
how much activity can be controlled uh, online by the uh, service provider itself versus using third parties. I think you'll see pressures in all those areas. And then you'll see supplementation of revenue and we saw big um, frequent flyer uh, plans, which are, you know, there are some overseas airlines where the frequent flyer plan apparently is valued more than the airline itself. Um, of course, of course, it's inherent that the airline needs to exist for the frequent flyer program to be of any value whatsoever. But notwithstanding that, uh, those are the market valuations, and so I think we'll see increasing effort to uh, extract revenue from those. And, and so these are all structural reforms. They're all things that we have said haven't really had to be pursued rigorously in Australia for a fair period because we haven't had this kind of. Um, forced situation where every cost needs to be re-examined to see whether it's a legitimate cost. I think you're going to see that in both airline and airport. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting. I know having a look at the Bain sort of, um, you know, pitch, if you like, was that they, you know, they're talking again about positioning version sort of between Jetstar and Qantas, which is in a sense where I thought they'd sort of entered the market and then, and then of course sort of seemed to embark on this head-to-head -head competition with, with Qantas and which has been beneficial to those of us who fly because prices came down and um, I think a lot more people were able to fly more often than they would have otherwise. Um, but it is interesting to see them sort of seemingly going back to back to the future a bit and where they I thought they kind of entered the Australian market um, and you know putting a price on things that we take for granted on some of the Qantas flights, if you like, in terms of, um, you know, entertainment and, you know, food and beverages and things like that. So I guess watch this space. Yeah, it's hard to speculate on the product offerings because, of course, there'll always be a case for saying, well, everybody else is being char is charging for every little thing, then I might be the carrier that wants to differentiate myself by not doing so. Maybe I'll, I'll take a different uh, segment of the market, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's plausible to see alterations in market strategies, for example. So rather than me tooism, might see quite significant divergence. I think it's interesting that Rex is thinking of starting up or is planning to start up on, on major routes, uh, and that, that's a there's a different differentiation uh, again in, in terms of alternative providers. So that's a you know there are I don't want to sound unrelentingly negative about this. I don't just think we've got to be. Uh, pretty honest about the likelihood of, of change here, but we will see potentially um, better kinds of service options for some areas. Mm -hmm. It's just the ones where we are, have utterly been used to uh, complete convenience in the consumer's hands. I, I wonder how well that will survive this kind of transition. Um, if you go back to the, the sort of nature of the Australian market and some of the immediate disruptions, I, I think one of the biggest challenges in Australia has always been you know, the, the service provision into some of the more remote locations um, and some of our regional centres. Is your sense that we're, we're sort of back, um, we're, we're in an okay space there or is there more that needs to happen there in terms of, you know, connectivity to our capital cities and, and what, what does the future look like uh, in terms of that, that segment of the market? Yeah, well, it's interesting because of the differentiation that occurs between the states, because the states do a lot of what I might call underwriting of, of those uh, regional services, but some states invest more in it than, than others do. And I wonder out of this kind of process whether that's going to be proved to be sustainable or not. Mm -hmm. It may well be that more states have to um, uh, do more underwriting for the purposes of, of regional services being maintained. Um, 
that, that, that's not really an assessment based on anything that I can see out of the current COVID circumstances. But, but I, I do think the extent to which uh, all airlines have to uh, re-examine all of their costs, you might find that some services are simply not sustainable if demand falls away because people are somewhat less comfortable about just jumping on an aircraft and being contained in an aluminium cylinder for an hour or two uh, with a bunch of other people. Now, that's a, a factor that we're going to have to see play out. But I do think it's not unreasonable fact that you might see, so if you see load factors fall on what are not terribly profitable regional routes, it just has to fall by a small amount and they're unsustainable, yet the service is tremendously important to those regional towns. Mm. That's the sort of thing I'm saying. We may see that play out. Uh, I, I don't know. Perhaps people, um, you know, people in the bush are inherently, you know, uh, pretty stoic about <laughs> uh, taking on uh, this kind of risk and, and may well uh, not be at all concerned. We'll, we'll see it soon enough, I think, when services do restart actively. Do you think uh, one of the one of the things that people were sort of talking about when international borders closed earlier, and I think looking for a bit of a um, you know, bright spark potentially on, on the tourism front was sort of quoting figures around the fact that more Australians go overseas every year than international visitors come to our shores um, and that maybe there'll be this great domestic-led um, tourism sort of recovery. Are you uh, optimistic about that? Well, a degree of that money I think will flow. Uh but I don't think anyone should imagine there's 100% direct transfer of that kind of of, uh, of funding. Remember, for some people, it'll be a postponement. Mm. Some people will still be very attached. I read just switching transport modes. I read that, that cruise line bookings are still being made actively, which is, so for some people, it's just a question of when I can get back on a cruise boat. So for some people, it'll just be, when can I get back on an international flight? And maybe I'll just not go overseas this year. So. Uh, and that doesn't mean the money therefore gets transferred into a domestic uh, uh, holiday. But I think a good chunk of that money will definitely, definitionally flow into um, uh, domestic tourism. The biggest question for domestic tourism is can they hold on to those changed customers? Yeah. Uh, in other words, can, can you actually convert someone from uh, wanting to take an international holiday whenever one is available to saying, you know, it's a genuine choice and maybe I'll, I'll spend more time at home? That will be you know, a question of, of the competitive offering of the domestic tourism industry. I, I think that I think that's going to be a really interesting challenge too. And I think when you've got people who there's a real difference in the market if you've got people who are, who are going to be repeat visitors um, to a location or you know in, in a location that's maybe similar, and how you differentiate products and how you innovate products in a way that perhaps you know some in the market haven't had to do because you've got this ready inflow of people who. We're really only ever going to have that experience uh, experience once. Um, the cruise thing is really interesting, Peter. I think one of the things that I've seen in some of the ads is that the risk the risk sharing on those bookings has shifted um, incredibly in favour of passengers prepared to book. So if you're prepared to book, what the cruise liners are prepared to do in terms of cancellation now is vastly different to what they were prepared to do six months ago. So they're doing everything they can to try to keep their interested parties um, putting money on the line, so to speak. Um, but well, you might, you might, so we might see international airlines having to do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Uh, because it was a bit hit and miss uh, in, in the in the close downs across Europe. I know this from personal experience. We were going to go to Europe in May. 
Um, we still haven't got our money back from the uh, quite well-reputed international carrier that um, what was, uh, which we paid a, quite a substantial amount of money. So and, uh, that's not saying we won't eventually get it. I'm being assured we will, but there's sort of no rush, if you like, to um, to this. So you might actually find that those cancellation policies is a good point to make, Linda. Maybe they'll change, and, and maybe yeah. they should change. Yeah, look, I think I think it's going to be really interesting to see how those how those markets change. Uh, in my family, we had a couple of people who were booked to go to the Olympics, and yeah, that's been interesting in, in terms of the the refund policies on on some of that as well, and the decisions the decisions you make. Well, the ones that strike me, Melinda, that, that did the worst job, this is just personal experience, were the insurers, um, because yeah. uh, we got a very poor response from the Australian insurance company to the extent that I actually registered a complaint with the ACCC about it. Um, they were, uh, and even now, I think uh, insurers are really, you know, they should take a serious look at the quality of their response to this, uh, because going into denial, in other words, waiting for the, the uh, period which you were meant to have got on a plane to pass and then saying, oh, well, we know you didn't fly, it's all your fault. It's not a very good response. So I will say uh, quite clearly on my own personal account, I do think the insurance, the travel insurance industry didn't have a good crisis. Yeah. Maybe it's improved itself, but it certainly didn't in my experience. And I, I know because I've paid a bit of attention to this in the media, that there were some murmurings in the media about this. Um, not as much as uh, as I personally think was deserved, but that's just a personal opinion. So, so let me take you back to, uh, to airlines and airports. Just as a final sort of question, do you think we're going to see, you know, you talked about different airport, potentially different airport sort of protocols and and putting a you know a sort of health um, lens over some of the protocols like we've seen in the security lens, which you know I think is a really interesting sort of um, an interesting issue to contemplate for those of us who've been used to travelling a lot. <laughs> um, but do you think I mean how about the commerciality of the of the airport side of things? And in the same way that you're sort of talking about airlines having to think about costs and charging and whatever else. Is this something that you know air travellers are going to have to get a little bit more used to as well? Is a bit more of an explicit cost that applies to the use of an airport? Yeah, well, I, this is where I think there will be a lot of competitive behaviour uh, for sure between uh, the public uh, authorities and and the uh, airports as privatised entities and the airlines, because the question of who pays for this additional uh, activity was uh, it was relatively problematic at the time. Uh, security changes post 9-11 uh, for a period and my expectation is it'll be problematic again. Uh, it's not to say it's, it's irresolvable, it will be resolved, but the question of who bears what cost and therefore if you like what is the, the public interest investment here and what is the facilitation of the private profit-making objective, that's always a very fraught area engagement between uh, 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 you know entities that that, that deal with government. Um, so I, I do think you'll see, um, yeah, I think you'll see some tension over that. But I doubt it'll spill over into a big public kind of dispute because no one will want to be seen not to support the idea of protocols that guarantee a healthy transition through an airport onto a plane. So no one will want to be seen that way, but I do think you'll see uh, debate, if indeed I'm, um, this is obviously one hypothetical course, it may well be that, that 
you know, we, we end up with a vaccine quite quickly and we don't have to adapt these things. But if we have to live with this virus uh, for the medium term, I think you will see health protocols changing operations and as a consequence of that, cost incurred. And the question is, uh, what of that is public interest cost and what of that is, is facilitation of, of private investment cost? Yeah. And so finally, Peter, any any insights from ANSET and, and what you think, you know, the government may need to do or what, what sort of market changes or regulatory changes might need to be rolled out to to make the, the best, if, if I can put it this way, of this set of circumstances? Well, the most important thing, and we said this uh, ourselves in terms of advice from the NCCC to the government, but many other parties did so as well. The most important thing was that the airline was not grounded because it is extraordinarily hard to recover consumer confidence from a grounded airline where people have had to be forced onto other networks and, and suffered uh, you know, a huge inconvenience and as well as cost. Uh, that confidence loss, so it was very important and, and uh, wisely handled, I think, ultimately, that administrators were called in in order to maintain the operation of the airline for a sufficient period that an owner could be found. And uh, so that's the number one lesson out of ANSET, don't let that happen. Mm. I think, and so that's delivered. Uh, in terms of, of, of future change, uh, it, it's going to be interesting. I expect that some capacity will be given up, if you follow through my question about will, will the utter convenience density of, of Sydney Melbourne be maintained, it means some slot capacity at airports may be freed up. Now, that would be a good thing for new entrants. On the other hand, it could be a bad thing if, if the capacity is, is um, uh, uh, or the people seek to grandfather or otherwise preserve it from, uh, from new entrants. So that too can play out. I expect that if Rex is going to start Sydney Melbourne, uh, services or Sydney Brisbane services. I'm not quite sure where on the East Coast, but I have only read the media reports, so I don't know anything uh, beyond them. But clearly, they'll be looking at slot access. Yeah. Um, and, and so, probable that if services are shrunk to a what might be considered a more sustainable base, either by Virgin or Virgin and, and Qantas, there will be slots freed up, uh, and therefore you will potentially see shape for alternative uh, uh, carriers emerge. Um, and that would be a good thing. Uh, and we have a formal slot management system at Sydney Airport, which ought to be able to manage the uh, reallocation of that. But that will be an interesting uh, public policy question to be to be played out. I would have thought, you know, in the next six months. In other words, yeah. relatively soon. And then, of course, in the medium term at Sydney, we've got we've got Nancy Bird Walton Airport as well to open in a few years' time. So. Uh, <laughs> would say it'll be that'll be another interesting conundrum, I think, to alter again the competitive dynamic in the basin, Sydney Airport Basin. Well, it will be. It's very interesting um, developments, and you know, I know just anecdotally, I was reflecting. That I think the last flight I caught was to and from Adelaide, and and walking through the Adelaide Airport, which has just been through this incredible refurb, you know, and I'm assuming is now sitting um, pretty quietly for for the time, and I know. There's been a fair bit of feedback of you know people delaying capital expenditures and expansions and things like that. So it's, it's a very interesting time all around, I think. It sure is. I, I flew. I've been flying to and from Canberra through this crisis, and uh, 
I'm one of the few people who's been travelling through airports on a regular basis, and uh, yeah, they are. Um, it's a, it's just very very unusual, <laughs> not just to see everything closed, but to see the the, the you know the, there's no uh, there's no real constraint in car parking <laughs> the way that it used to be. So things like that too, quite significant revenue sources for airports are obviously quite uh, significantly altered as a result of this. No, no I know. I um, I've had precisely one flight, uh, and that was to and from Canberra for our State of the Nation event, and um, to interview the Prime Minister. And you know, flying out on the Sunday was really strange. Um, it felt like we were sort of in in one of those um, in a, a movie set for some sort of horror or zombie movie because there just there were not enough people around to be normal. <laughs> yep. Well, as a positive, though, Melinda, and all this, every flight I've been on has been on time or early. <laughs> well, there we go, the silver lining. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter, yep. for, for your comments today. Um, go well. Hopefully you get yourself back into Queensland and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, Melinda. See you.